what I'd like to do tonight is I would like to direct our attention to something that is a favorite of mine, a, a huge favorite of mine, and that's the uh, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the historical evidence for that. What I'm going to share with you tonight is what we share with our new members, and I won't have the opportunity to do that very often. And so uh, what I'd like to be able to do is take us on a legal justification or apologetic of the resurrection. Uh, I've told some of you this before that at one point I wanted to be a lawyer. I love evidence and I love accumulating evidence. And for me, this is something that is a, a real love of mine. One of the books to which I'm greatly indebted started out as a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And Evidence That Demands a Verdict was written by a man by the name of Josh McDowell. But then he wrote another book called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And then it was republished. And you can see this is a pretty thick volume right now. And it's called Evidence for Christianity. It contains both of those volumes. And it is almost 750 pages. And this is what I love. I love the accumulation of evidence. And he beats a lot of things half to death. When he makes a point, he will document it and over-document it. And it's what I love, and I have to discipline myself not to share that. Because if I shared all of that, we'd only get one point at, at a time ever. And um, his apologetic is a very good one. But here's what he says as a, a former doubter and uh, atheist who was not able to, to, to come to grips with the truth of the gospel. But then he said this, After more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundations, and the subject that he's talking about is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, he says that Christianity rises or falls on the truth of the resurrection of Christ. And... He says, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject, thoroughly investigating its foundations, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. And he undoubtedly came to the conclusion that it is the most fantastic fact of history. So I'm indebted to him for a lot of what is here, and I will quote once from this directly, in fact, maybe several times, uh, but read once directly for it. I start out asking a question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And you remember we've talked about that this morning on several levels at several, several different occasions, but it kept taking us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, it's of first importance. The Lord Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And he was seen by all of these different ones. So the good news, the gospel, is the story of what Jesus did when he came. He died for us. He was raised from the dead after he was buried, well, after three days in the tomb. So the question, what is the gospel? What is of first importance to a Christian's belief? We've got to put the resurrection there because we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, if there was no resurrection, we are of all people the most miserable. Our faith is totally useless. There's no point really in waking up in the morning and going off to face the day. What point would there be if there's no resurrection of the Lord Jesus? In fact, I have a hard time understanding how anybody can desire to get out of bed in the morning and go off into a Christless day if they don't know him. 
Now, one of the things that we, when we talk about the resurrection is what exactly do we mean when we talk about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? And those of you that can see the screen, okay, which of the following words are true about the resurrection? Bodily, symbolic, physical, figurative, mythical, literal, real, absolute, or wishful thinking. So let's take them one at a time. Which is true about the resurrection? Was it bodily? Did Jesus bodily raise from the dead? Yes, he did. Is it symbolic? No, it's not. It's not symbolic. It's real. I'm talking about the death of the Lord Jesus. I'm not talking about can we glean any symbols from that, but it is not symbolic. Some people teach only a symbolic resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and that's not biblical. Was it a physical resurrection? Yes, it was. Was it figurative? No, it was not. Was it mythical? No. Was it literal? Yes. Was it real? Yes. Was it absolute? Yes. Is it wishful thinking? And the answer to that would certainly be no. Josh McDowell says that there is more evidence for the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ than for any other historical event of antiquity. We're going to look at six exhibits as if we were in a courtroom here tonight. Six exhibits that could be presented as evidence in a courtroom if we were deciding is the resurrection real or not. And the first exhibit would be the stone. And some of you have heard me speak about this before, so I apologize, but I love to hear it. And so if it doesn't minister to anybody, it will minister to me tonight, and I hope it will to you as well. But the stone, the stone is misnamed. It's not a stone. It boulder would be better. Uh, it's a Greek word, magus, which means great. We're not talking about a pebble. We're not talking about a rock. We're talking about a boulder or something that is very, very large. According to Mark 16, it was a very large stone. And let me read, if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter 16, to get some background here. Mark 16, I'd like to read just the first eight verses. Verse 1 of Mark 16, When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices, or excuse me, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? That's at least three ladies wondering who's going to roll the stone away. And looking up, They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, at least at at that moment. Interesting, the stone. In verse 4 that we just read, very large. Too large, again, for three women to have any hope of moving it. You see the picture on the screen. You can see the, uh, as I identify some of the prepositions and other things that are there, it's probably much more exaggerated than we see it there. 
But in ancient manuscripts, the Cambridge Library in England, the stone is described as one that 20 men could not roll away. And according to two engineering professors who visited the area of the tomb, a stone the size of one to fill the usual opening of a tomb, four and a half to five feet high, that was normal, would have to weigh one and a half to two tons. The stone had been held in place on the groove or stone trench that sloped down to the front of the tomb. When the wedge was pulled away, gravity did the work, and the stone slid down to the entrance of the tomb. And it tells us in the ESV the stone had been rolled back. The prepositions are very important here. Mark adds something. He adds a small preposition to the root word for rolling the stone in place to describe the removal of the stone as if it would be rolled upward, up a slope, up an incline, which would make the heaviness of that stone even more pronounced because it had to go uphill. Luke added a different preposition. John used a different word. But all of them indicated the stone was rolled away or even picked up and carried away. It was not at the opening of the tomb. It had gone up and away. Now, think about that as you know the story of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and you know the lies that were told trying to silence those who were talking about a resurrected Savior. This is an important exhibit to understand that stone because if, as the authorities said, the disciples came and stole Jesus' body away while the Roman guards slept, this is something that is monstrous to move without waking up the Roman guard if they were asleep, which they wouldn't have been anyway. But think about that and think about some of the other stories that Jesus would have somehow rolled the stone away himself. That's absolutely impossible. And, and as we hear some of the theories behind why some, some will discredit the resurrection, they don't make any sense when we look at the evidence. So this is one exhibit, the stone. Exhibit B would be a death certificate. Jesus actually died, and he actually died then, right after the crucifixion or during the crucifixion. Again, if you know some of the theories, they're trying to say that Jesus didn't really die then. He only swooned, and later on, he, he kind of revived in the tomb. Uh, an impossibility. There was a death certificate, if you will. Careful examination makes it easy to prove in addition to the testimony of Nicodemus, the soldiers, the centurion, and Joseph of Arimathea, uh, there was much evidence that the Lord Jesus actually died then at the crucifixion. Joseph of Arimathea wrapped Jesus' body in 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. He certainly would have known if there was even the, the, the flickering of life in Jesus while he was doing that. And I do want to read something here from something that Josh McDowell has written. With regard to the fact, you remember when Jesus was on the cross and you remember they stuck the spear in his side? You remember what came out? Blood and water. And that may seem very unimportant at first glance, but it was significant. It was extremely significant. And here's what someone wrote of this, a medical authority. We are told on eyewitness authority that blood and water came out of the pierced side of Jesus. That's John 19, 34 and 35. The eyewitness clearly attached great importance to this. Had Jesus been alive when the spear pierced his side, strong spouts of blood would have emerged with every heartbeat. 
Instead, the observer noticed semi-solid dark red clot seeping out, distinct and separate from the accompanying watery serum. This is evidence of massive clotting of the blood in the main arteries and is exceptionally strong medical proof of death. It is all the more impressive because the evangelist, that's the writer, uh, Apostle John, could not possibly have realized its significance to a pathologist today. The blood and water from the spear thrust is proof positive that Jesus was already dead. And again, that's something that is very significant, that he had died. Exhibit C would be the disciples, and we've mentioned this before. The disciples before. If you can see the picture, you notice they appear to be huddling in fear and terror because that's a good description of them. Before, Matthew describes it, but this had all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Mark's account, then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. John's account, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. That's the before. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, after his appearances to his apostles, Luke's account, then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now look at them. They were huddled in fear. Now they're in the temple. What were they thinking? Who's at the temple? The very people that they were so afraid of before, the very people who had condemned the Lord Jesus to death. But they're in the temple now. Not only that, we find them going, as I mentioned this morning, to die martyrs' deaths with the possible exception of the Apostle John. They died cruel, terrifying deaths, yet none of that was intimidating to them in face of a resurrected Lord Jesus. And they were in the best position to know the Lord Jesus and to know who he was. Some were crucified upside down, beheaded, attempted to be killed by being boiled in oil, burned, thrown to animals. Where do you get that kind of courage? It's not to defend a lie. It's because there's a resurrection of the Lord Jesus that they had seen. Exhibit D, the safeguards. The safeguards, and we'll we'll mention them in passing, the Roman guard. The Roman guard, perhaps 16 men. Usually it would have been 16 men. Uh, and they could sleep. It was four to 16 men. Maybe uh, four would be asleep, but the others would have to be awake. Listen to this description. Roman guards were practically invincible. They did not fall asleep on the job. The Roman guard unit was possibly a four to 16-man security force. Each man was armed to the teeth and specially trained to be a part of the world's greatest fighting machine. Each man was trained to protect six feet of ground, The 16 men in a square of four on each side were supposed to be able to protect 36 yards against an entire battalion and hold it. Normally, four guards were awake and alert, while 12 formed a semicircle in front of what needed to be protected. I can only think of one force that would be greater than the Roman guard there, and that would be the Alden police officers, led by their chief, Ken Coppola, who happens to be here in the back. (laughs) 
This is the Roman guard that we're supposed to believe slept on their watch and then ran away in fear from Jesus' spineless disciples. It simply doesn't justify the facts that we know. If they ever did do that, the punishment would be severe. One way a guard was put to death was by stripping him of his clothes then burning him alive in a fire that was started by his own clothes. You can imagine the fear and attention to duty that sort of thing produced. Roman soldiers simply didn't sleep on the job. So exhibit D, the safeguards, one of them is the Roman guard. The other one is the Roman seal. And um, he's pictured on, oh, wait a minute, how'd that get there? Uh, Not that kind of seal. Uh, The Roman seal, after the tomb was inspected, to make sure the body was there and everything was in order. A cord was stretched across the rock. It was fastened at either side with sealing clay. Then the clay was stamped with the official signet of the Roman governor. Anyone trying to move the stone from the tomb's entrance would have broken the seal and brought on himself the wrath of all of the power of the law of the Romans. And again, we're led to believe if the stories were true that were perpetrated at that time, that the spineless disciples were messing with the Romans and weren't fearful. That didn't happen until after the resurrection, not before. Exhibit E, the grave clothes. Grave clothes in the form of a body slightly caved in and empty like a leftover caterpillar's cocoon. If you can picture what's going on there, when John saw this, Interestingly enough, when he came to the tomb, it says he saw this and he believed. The empty tomb did not seem to impress him as much as the undisturbed grave clothes did. This is not the way robbers would come and try to to, to leave all of these clothes, unwrap all of that. And somehow, if you notice the picture that is there on the right-hand side, you notice that it was as if he just disappeared and the clothes remained that were there. Exhibit E, the grave clothes. Exhibit F, F, the empty tomb. And this is something that's very, very significant. The empty tomb. Both the Jewish and the Roman sources acknowledged an empty tomb. They never denied the tomb was empty. They only denied what had happened. And they said the disciples came and stole the body. They never said there was still a body there. So they're not denying the empty tomb. That's the kind of positive endorsement from a hostile source that's considered the strongest kind of historical evidence. The authorities in Jerusalem bribed the guards to say the disciples stole Jesus' body. Special representatives were sent throughout the Mediterranean world to to perpetuate this theft alibi. Why would any of this be necessary if there was still a body in the tomb? We have no choice but to agree with the Romans, the Jews, and the Christians that the tomb was empty. They all agreed with that. And that's very, very significant. Tom Anderson, former president of the California Trial Lawyers Association, co-author of the Basic Advocacy Manual of Association of Trial Lawyers of America, says this, Let's assume that Christ did not rise from the dead. Let's assume that the written accounts of his appearance is to be to hundreds of people are false. I want to pose a question. With an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? Listen, I saw the tomb. It was not empty. Look, I was there. Christ did not rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, I saw Christ's body. 
The silence of history is deafening when it comes to testimony against the resurrection, the empty tomb. Six exhibits in a courtroom with a lawyer bringing all of this up to set the foundation for his case and then making a case for the resurrection. This is compelling evidence. And then it gets stronger because we've got that empty tomb, we've got no explanation, and now we've got eyewitness accounts. And we mentioned a little bit of that this morning. The Bible tells us that a lot of people saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. A whole lot of people did. There were more than 500 eyewitnesses. And when Paul wrote that, 1 Corinthians 15, most of them were still alive. They could have been called in question. They could have any one or any combination of them been brought forward to say, no, that wasn't Jesus. I, I don't know who said that I saw him. I never did. But there were more than 500. There were at least 13 post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus most of them to the apostles who were least likely to fall for an imposter. And understand again, the apostles, having seen the Lord Jesus, were convinced that this was on the level. If they hadn't been, why would they die for a lie? What could they possibly gain from that? They died for the truth, what they believed to be infallible truth. At least 13 post-resurrection appearances, Mary Magdalene was the first The other women, at least several of them, came along. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The eleven apostles on one occasion. Then Peter by himself, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. Then the ten. This time Thomas was not there. The eleven apostles in John 20. The seven apostles at the Sea of Galilee that we studied this morning. 500 brothers at least on one occasion in 1 Corinthians 15. 11 disciples in Galilee, Matthew 28. James had a a private appearance as well from the Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 says. At the time of Jesus' ascension in Luke 24, more people saw him. To Paul at his conversion, that's at least 500 people and at least 557 individual reunions by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've said this before. How do you think that would hold up in a court of law? How impatient would a judge be if you tried to call 557 witnesses to the same thing? How many would you need? How many would you need? After the first two, justice would be satisfied. Three would be even more so. But by the time you get to four, five, a hundred, two hundred, five hundred, a judge would be saying, enough. You don't need to call any more witnesses. And we could, we could think about that in terms of a modern trial, but in terms of a modern trial, it would get laughed out of court right away, all those witnesses, because the evidence would be too preponderant. Now, if you picked up an outline on the way in tonight, you will see that on that outline, there are some false theories of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I am not going to refute them. I'm not going to tell you everything that was wrong with each one of these false theories. I just want to mention them so you're aware of them. And also, if you think about the exhibits and you think about the eyewitnesses, you'll be able to refute it yourself without my having to go into that. There are five theories that have been proposed which are based on the premise that Jesus' body never left the tomb. 
This didn't come from the Romans. This didn't come from the Jews. This didn't come from the Christians. This came from people later on who were trying to justify intellectually that this supernatural event could never have occurred. One of these theories is known as the unknown tomb theory. Jesus was thrown into a common pit for criminals, not a specific tomb. No one could produce his body. Uh, but you know better. You know all about what Joseph of Arimathea did, and you know about the women watching the tomb, knowing what it was. The Romans knew what tomb, etc. I'm not going to refute them, as I said. The next one is the wrong tomb theory. The women went to the wrong tomb on Sunday morning. Uh, but of course, if you think about it, the women were not the only ones. There were others who went to that same tomb, including, again, the Romans. The legend theory. The resurrection accounts are legend, cropping up years after the time of Jesus. Not so if you know anything about the timing of the scriptures and when they were written. The spiritual resurrection theory. Those who want to say, I don't want to discredit the Bible. There's a resurrection that took place, but it was all spiritual. And because Jesus somehow became a great example for all of us, we were all resurrected into a new thinking so that we could help our fellow man better. The hallucination theory. People only thought they saw Jesus. It was purely psychological. It was imagination. It was wishful thinking. Understand how unusual it would be for the same hallucination to come to even two people at the same time. That's not the nature of an hallucination. There are four theories that allow for an empty tomb but give a natural explanation for it. One of them is the theft theory. And I've already been alluding to that, but that is the one that was perpetuated by the Romans and by the early Jewish folks at that time. The disciples came and stole Jesus' body while the Roman guards slept. And I won't refute that because I think you can do that already. The theft theory, too. The authorities came and stole Jesus' body. Not the disciples, but the authorities did. Either Roman or Jewish. Two why questions. Why would they do that? And why did they not produce the body when the thoughts of the resurrection were causing so much consternation and trouble for them? The swoon or the resuscitation theory would be the next one. And uh, you know what that is. Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned on the cross. And when he got into the sepulcher, the, when he got into the, the tomb, the coolness revived him. And uh, if you read the authorities, they will tell you that that coolness and the dampness of that tomb would not revive anybody. If there was any life left, that would certainly be the end of it. And there's a whole lot more that could be said about that. And then there's the Passover plot. How many of you have heard of that book, The Passover Plot by Hugh Schoenfeld? It's absolutely ridiculous, but there are a lot of people buying it years ago. Jesus believed he was the Messiah. He plotted and carefully orchestrated the whole apparition of his resurrection. Joseph of Arimathea was in on the conspiracy. Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies, this book says, and ordered his life to fit into them. He took a drug on the cross to stimulate, to simulate death. The plot was foiled, though, when they thrust the spear in his side. He hadn't planned on that happening. And he was just about killed by that. He was only alive enough to fake that he was somehow a glorified risen Savior, and he died a short time later, and he was buried in some secret place. That's the Passover plot by Hugh Schoenfeld. An unknown young man at the tomb was repeatedly mistaken for Jesus. 
Now, there is really only one explanation that fits the facts. You have on your sheet something else. It's the theft theory and the swoon theory, and my assessment of them, foolishness, meaningless, and I'm not going to go through the acronym with you, but that acronym just spells out the evidence that we've just said, why the theft theory is not valid at all. Just to give you an example, the F would stand for the, the fearfulness of the disciples, things that we've already gone over. But one explanation that fits the facts. If you'll turn with me one more time today to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the only one. And as a result of what is what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, we find out that there's more circumstantial evidence to back up the historical facts of Jesus' resurrection. This time it's circumstantial. More evidence, but it's circumstantial. The church, beginning in Jerusalem, evidence of resurrection power. Sunday worship, weekly celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Baptism and communion, picturing the resurrection of Christ, remembering his death till he comes. Changed lives. All of this is important, but one explanation that fits the facts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then he tells a little bit about himself. That is the only explanation that fits the facts We don't have to divorce ourselves from our brains to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a blind faith. It is a faith that is based on evidence. It is a faith nonetheless, but it's based on something that God has given us, a preponderance of evidence. So that when Josh McDowell would say something like, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's more evidence for a bodily resurrection of Christ and for any other historical event of antiquity. Let's pray and thank the Lord for that. Heavenly Father, thank you that you haven't called us to divorce ourselves from our brains, that you've given to us a faith that our minds are able to accept as well. Thank you for this evidence of the resurrection, and we've just scratched the surface. This is absolutely the tip of the iceberg. But thank you even for that glimpse of what it is that was truly accomplished. Thank you for the reality of it. Thank you that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus was bodily, literal, real, and absolute. And thank you in his name. Amen.